so we're in Genesis 14. You can open there. Um, if I say the word hippie, what comes to mind? Tequilma. That's exactly what should come to mind. So it's more than just that word, right? It represents a big kind of idea, time, Woodstock, you know, don't take baths, don't cut your hair, live off the land. That one word represents something much larger. If I say the word millennial, what comes to mind? Hipster. What was that? Liberals. Well, I don't know if all millennials are, but maybe they don't want jobs. Like you'd probably say that. Like, you know, I feel, I say feel a lot. Have you noticed that? I talked to a lot of millennials. And like my generation, I would say, well, I think millennials don't say that. You know what they say? I feel. And that really is a giveaway on what directs what they do in life. Not, I'm going to logically process this thing. It's, I feel this way. And so now for me, that's true. So it's, it's fascinating talking with them. They're awesome. So, but both those words, you know that it's not just, hey, this narrow little thing, it actually is a much larger, the hippies, the, the millennials, whatever it is, the hipsters. It's, it's an it's a entire kind of culture that surrounds that word. Well, in Genesis 14, we get a word like that. And it's the first time the word appears in the Bible. Can anyone guess what that word is in chapter 14? There's actually two of them, but this one's a little different. It's the word king. So up to this point, there has not been a king. There hasn't been the, the, the ruler, the person that's able to kind of do what a king would do. So we're introduced to this king thing. And the first time we see a king, they're forcing tribute and they're warring, which should tell you something about kings right away. So we, we get kings in this chapter and there is a massive biblical theology on kings that it would take an entire evening that maybe sometime I'll do it, but I'll just scratch the surface when we're done because king becomes a very, very important thing. Um, God is called king for the very first time after he punches Pharaoh in the mouth and rescues his people. It's in Exodus chapter 15. It's the song of the triumph of that event. And for the first time, Yahweh is called king. And then you have in this, you have Isaiah the prophet saying there's coming this king. This, the king becomes this massive thing. So this is the introduction to king and it's very negative. All right, so um, that's the prime of the pump. I'll be pretty quick so I can spend a little bit of time on the king idea. So let's jump in. Genesis 14. Verse one, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alasser, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. And it kind of backs up. 
Okay, so it tells you, for 12 years, they had served Ketolaomer. So he's the number one dude. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. That's as many hard words as they could possibly fit in one paragraph. It was like, a, it was a challenge. How many difficult words can we put in a paragraph? They won. This is the, this is the winning paragraph. So I'm finally through it. Um, here's what you have. You have kings and they're, they're kings of a, of a city, really, a city kind of state. They have this little kind of city and they're the king. And they had at some point defeated other kings and now they're making them pay tribute, right? So this is the classic bully. Give me your lunch money. Right? That's what's happening. I, I, lo- I read this about a bully. Uh, this guy said, um, I saw an old high school bully, and once again, he took my lunch money, and he made me a great Subway sandwich. <laughs> I'm like, that's pretty good. <laughs> so you have a bully, right? These, these kings are bullies. They're saying to these other people, give us your money, give us your money. And then finally, after 12 years of this, they decide to test. And we're not going to pay you anymore. We're not paying the tribute. Are you strong enough to come and take it, right? So this is the classic moment in a movie, right? With Biff and Michael J. Fox, what's going to happen? They're now standing up against the bully. No, no, no. So what happens is Ketolamir spends a year, gets together these other kings, and, and you could take a map if you wanted to. What they do, they travel what's called the King's Highway, the King's Highway in Israel, it's across the Jordan River. It's east of the Jordan River. It's on this, the, the, this plateau. So they come down this plateau, and what they do is they defeat everybody along this plateau. They're coming from the north up by Damascus. They're coming from the north, and they just defeat every single person that if these kings escaped, they couldn't go and live in one of those towns. They couldn't go get help from one of those kings. So it's a real methodical, we're going we're gonna to get you. We are gonna make an example of you. So they defeat all anyone that they might ally with on the way down. They get down to the wilderness. They do a U-turn and they start taking out anyone else that they might come to. And then finally come to this, the valley, it calls it the Valley of Sea, the Salt Sea or the Valley of Siddam. And they come there and they're saying, okay, let's do it. All right, so that sets that up. And here we go, verse eight. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, this is the other side, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedolaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Alasar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. This is on the other side now. 
This is the Great Rift Valley. If you know that, it's the, it's the deepest valley in the world. It's where the Dead Sea is. So they've already wiped out the eastern side of it. So the hill country is on the west side of it. So they run up that side. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. Um, They crush them. The bully wins. If you read this account and you read other, they're called ancient Near East, ancient Near East accounts of battles, this one is very weird because it's all geography. City, 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 city. This, they turn this way, city, city, city. There's no like guts and glory. And usually what you would have is you'd have kings bragging. I went down and I smote that city and I killed 10,000 of their best men and I took this much booty with me. There's none of that. It's really actually a very strange account when you compare it to anything else. It's all land geography, land geography, land geography. It's, it's very different. And the main place that this battle takes where it actually happens, the clash, it calls it the Valley of Siddim. Back up in verse three, it calls it the Salt Sea. And here's what's believed. If you look at the Dead Sea, the northern part of the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet deep, really, really deep. The southern end is like 10 to 15 feet deep. It's this big plateau at the southern end. So a lot of people believe that if you went back to this time, Sodom and Gomorrah were on that plain that's now under 10, 15 feet of water. That there was, it was a very different geography back then. And the towns were right there. That's where this Valley of Sinem is. It's now underwater. There's geographic changes. Maybe it happened when God destroys it. Nobody knows. But probably those cities were right there because it mentions these bitumen pits, which are just tar pits. They're the oily tar stuff. And if you go back um, to the Romans, 2,000 years ago, they would go to the Dead Sea and they would grab these massive chunks of tar, this tar oil. They said they were the size of a headless bull and they would sell them because it was really, really good stuff. You could pitch a a boat with it so it would float. But the biggest use of this tar was actually a medicine, that this tar oil they believed if if you ate it or you did certain things with it, that it would make you healthy, right? It was a cure-all. It was the first essential oil came from these little pits, right? (laughs) And there's actually some truth to it. In the 1800s, the pharmaceuticals, they were using, they were breaking and and cracking oil and tar to get out certain things to make pharmaceuticals. So there's probably some truth to it. There is something with it, all right? In fact, a lot of the Dead Sea tar at the time of Abram, 2,000 years before the Romans, went to the Egyptians because they used it for mummifying. So it was really, it, it, there's a lot of historical proof that this, that this Valley of Sinem existed and that this, that this was a really unique spot. So it happens right here. Um, unlike the movie, the bully wins, right? McFly has to run away. Biff rules. He takes them, runs off. And it says when the two kings fled, they kind of left everyone else and fled to the hill country. So these kings are cowards, right? So there's the battle. Pretty simple. Then we get to the rescue. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram 
the Hebrew. Now, once again, Abram's living up on the west side in the hill country. He's up there, Bethel, Shechem. That's kind of his route. He's up in there somewhere. So when they escaped, they ran up there. They go tell him. He was a big enough dude at this time to be alerted of what had happened. So one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, way up in the north. And he divided his forces against them by night. He's got a plan. Puts out his dudes at nighttime, and he and his servants defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Most likely, when these kings went back home with all their plunder, battles over, what do soldiers do? They get drunk. Someone said it. You get drunk. You party. Yeah, we won. Party. So he probably comes on them. They're wasted and they get wasted. So that takes place right here. They defeat them. Uh, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Another first thing that you see in this chapter is verse 13. It calls Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time we see that word. There's a big debate on what that means. What, What does Hebrew mean? It could go back to chapter 11 where Abram's great, 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 I think it's six generations. His great, 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 great grandfather was named Eber, which is actually the the root word. So maybe it's that, but I think it's this. The word Hebrew kind of means uh, on the side of or side of. So there's a thought that Abram was viewed by the people as a religious nonconformer. If you remember in chapter 12, he moves to Shechem, which is the center of worship of the God El. There he makes a altar to Yahweh right there. So he is like, you guys are doing your thing, but I'm a religious nonconformer. So there was a saying about him that was literally this, all the world is on one side, one Hebrew, one Eber, while Abram is on the other Eber or other side. So I think that's actually what it is. That Abram was a religious nonconformist and he goes, you guys can do what you wanna do. I don't care. I'm gonna be over here. I'm gonna serve Yahweh. You can serve El, you can serve Baal, you can serve whoever, not me, I'm over here. And so the name sticks because what was God's plan for Israel? They were to be Hebrews, right? You be on that side. You guys are gonna do things different. You're gonna demonstrate to all the nations what happens when you stand on my side. What happens when a people say, I'm their God. I'm gonna have you as a light in the midst of evil nations, right? That you are so counterculture that people are saying, well, you're something different. You're a nation that's different. What's your deal? That you're supposed to actually be this disruptive force in this area, demonstrating what it looks like to serve Yahweh. It would be like this. It'd be like, have you ever um, driven in a country where they drive on the other side of the road? Anybody ever done that? Do you make a mistake while doing that? 
I did. So I was in Thailand um, and I rented a moped because they were like $5 for the day. So I'm riding, I'm, I'm riding this moped and I'm doing really well because I was following people, you know? But I came to this massive intersection. It was probably like a, one of those crazy ones where it's six different traffic people coming in the same area. The guy I'm following takes a right. I need to take a left. And then I just went into old school mode and I end up going right into just a wall of traffic. I felt like a cat being thrown in a pack of dogs. Like I'm like, I'm gonna die here. So I just pulled over and just, <sighs> I was very disruptive and people let me know that. They were not happy with me. I did not know Thai. I do not know Thai, but I understood what they were saying to me. Right, it was very clear. You're disruptive right now. Okay, that's what we're supposed, that's what Israel is supposed to be. You're here as a light to these nations. You're supposed to disrupt the way they do things. They're supposed to be looking at you and saying, hey, we're all on this side, but you're on that side. What's your deal? What's your story? Now, did they live like a distinct kingdom? No. What do they say in 1 Samuel? Give us a king like all the other nations, right? Continually, we want to be like the other nations. We don't wanna just serve Yahweh. We wanna serve the gods of the other nations. So Israel was supposed to be an Eber, a Hebrew on this side. But instead what you see is over and over, they end up adopting and becoming just like the nations that they were supposed to be countercultural to and disruptive to. So they're not. And you know the whole story. They keep failing, failing, failing. Finally, they go into Babylon. They go to the center of the other side and God rescues them and says, here's the key. I have to change your heart. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. You guys know that, okay? So then Jesus comes and what does he say about us? Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Be salt and be light. Be like a city set on a hill. I want you to be the same thing. I want you to be this colony that demonstrates what happens when you follow me, become followers of me, how you live life differently. And then really a sermon about is what that's gonna look like. Love your enemies. Okay, those guys, the other other nations, man, they love their friends. That's easy. But you, my people, you're supposed to be disruptive to that. You're supposed to love even your enemies. And you really see that played out. Be so different. Be a Hebrew, if you would. The world stands over here. You stand here in disruption of that system. That's how we're supposed to live, like Hebrews. So that's what Abram is. He's that Hebrew. And it says he gathered together 318 of these guys. Why the number 318? That's all he had. That's a great answer. He would have taken 319 if he had them, but he didn't. I wish I had 319. You read commentaries, and commentaries sometimes, I'm like, whoa, whoa. Here's what one commentary said. It's one of my favorites. It said this, 318 is the sum of the 12 prime numbers from 7 to 47. So I kept reading like, okay, what does that mean? And, And then it just like went on to the next thing. I'm like, what a random rabbit trail. And I just gave it to you as well. <laughs> I have no idea why it's 318, but, according, but here's a good fact. 318 is the sum of the 12 random numbers, or 12, not random, 12 prime numbers from 7 to 47. So just, I have no idea. He would have taken more. The point is this to me. 
He's trained these men. They're born in his home. He's taken time. He's taken effort. He has trained them and equipped them. My question for myself as a dad is, am I training my five, or right now the seven, that are in my home? Because that's my responsibility. Am I training them? Are they trained? When I release them, are they going to be a trained crew? Broader than that, you know, or the house of God, are we training those that come in here, those that are baptized, those that are believers, those that are, are, are we equipping, am I equipping those that are in here? It's to me a very sobering thought. Am I doing a good job with those that are in this house? Are we doing a good job as parents with those that are in our house? Abraham does it well. The church grows by spiritual reproduction. 2 Timothy 2.2. Timothy, take what I've told you. Train godly men who will then train more godly men. Spiritual reproduction. That's the way it works. And I'll tell you, there's no way better to work out what you believe than when you try to train somebody else because they'll start asking you questions like, oh my goodness, that doesn't work now. I never thought of that verse. Oh my goodness, right? Well, let me get back to you. And if you're willing to do that, willing to be like, I don't know, you can learn a lot and you get trained as well that both people benefit. I hope we're training well. So Abram has to rescue Lot. Does he have to rescue him again? Yeah, chapter 18, right? Yahweh comes, we'll talk about what that means. Yahweh is here and he's eating with me. And he says, I'm gonna go down and destroy Sodom. So what, how does, this time it's a physical war, but in chapter 18, how does Abram, Abraham at that point, how does he rescue Lot? Intercession. He intercedes on behalf of Lot and saves him, if you would. So Abram has to save him twice. Abram is the father figure to Lot and he's demonstrating something. He is loyal almost to a fault to his nephew. I love that. He is loyal almost to a fault to this spoiled nephew who took the best land and essentially said, forget you, uncle, you don't know what you're doing. He rescues him twice. What's sad to me today is I think Many young men learn more loyalty from their dog than they do from their dads. And I think that's a tragedy. That we fathers, we should be demonstrating the same loyalty that God has for us. We should be demonstrating that to our children as well. So I'm reading a book right now. Actually, I finished it. It's a a fascinating book. I won't recommend it unless you're interested in these things. But it's called Adam's Return. It's about like... um, Throughout the world, there's these rituals that tell boys when you're a man. The bar mitzvah, the toga viralis, there's all these, the aborigines, the Indians, like they have their spirit quest, that there was all these kind of, and, and it, it signified something to boys. And um, we've changed a lot with history. So the 1800s changed how family worked. Do you know that? Before the 1800s, before the Industrial Revolution, boys would spend the majority of their time with which parent? Dad, right. What were they doing? 
milking the cows, plowing the field, building something, right? You had the boy with you all the time. But for the first time in the 1800s, the man left the home and worked somewhere else. So the boy was with who now? Mom. Is that good or bad? Well, we've said today that's good. I don't know if that's good, right? So if I was to say this to you, if I had just my $3, if I said this, if for some reason Charity wasn't around and I said, I'm going to raise my $3 by myself. I don't need any woman to help me. What would you say to me? Right there. But we don't say that at all about a boy with a woman. Why is that? It's really interesting to me. There is a reverse thing that's happening and I don't think it's right. I think boys need that. They need the man. They need that. What they say now is happening is boys meet their first man when they're 18 and they get a job and they can't handle it. And so they're like, I'm out. That dude was mean to me. That dude told me to do something and I don't want to do it, right? It's like, well, you're getting paid. What do you want him to do? I mean, it's like, well, you know, it's because they haven't faced that. So anyways, that's a bit of a sidetrack. But in Adam's return, this is what he says. He says, if a boy does not see greatness, at a certain point in his life, he becomes cosmically disappointed and cynical about life from that point on. That we almost need an Abraham moment getting 318 people and doing something so risky and radical. And we say, that was awesome. Whoa. Do you remember the, uh, the, the movie, The Incredibles? It's like one of my favorite movies because Elijah said I was Mr. Incredible for a while. So it's kind of like, yeah, let's watch it again. Why not? So there's a little boy, you know, he's on the tricycle and he's waiting there. Mr. Incredible comes home. It's in the bad part of the movie, you know, when, when he's not doing anything and he's like, I hate life. And uh, he looks at the little boy and goes, what are you waiting for? You remember what the little boy says? I don't know. Something amazing. I said, that's it. That's what every little boy is waiting for. I don't know. Something amazing. That's why boys tend to gravitate toward knights and lords of the rings and something amazing. And if they don't sense it, if they don't get it, they can become cynical. We almost need these these Abraham moments where men demonstrate greatness. Now, why, why would Abram go against these kings that had just completely annihilated all the known land with 318 guys. Why would he do that? No one knows. Here's my guess. I think Abram believed God, Romans 14. And God had told him, Genesis chapter 12, verse seven, your offspring will inherit this land. Does he have offspring yet? No. He's like, I don't have a kid yet. I can't die. Let's go. Right? Right? I think that's what he said. That's where greatness comes from. That's what kids are looking for. Young men especially are looking for that. Oh, dude, let's go. Let's go. Abram does it for his nephew and it's awesome, all right? So he rescues him. Then, then we get this and this is, this is crazy weird. Let's just be honest. Verses 17 through 24, if you're reading Genesis is weird. And whenever you see a segment like this, 
You're supposed to stop and be like, what in the world? I need to really think this through. This is one of those texts. What in the world? I need to think this through. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hands to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. You're supposed to say, huh? What? Who are these people? This is crazy. That's what you're supposed to say right there. Okay? So here's what happens. He's defeated them. He's coming back what's called the Patriarch's Highway, which is straight down the ridge of Israel. Not the King's Highway, which is over on the eastern side of the Jordan. This is straight down. So he's coming back on that road. He's, he comes to, it goes right into Jerusalem. The King's Highway, we find in 2 Samuel 18, is the Kidron Valley. It's the valley that's on the eastern side of Jerusalem. So he's coming through that valley and there the king of Sodom had probably gone up the hill country and escaped up there. He's up in that same region, having run away from this war. He's there. He hears about the defeat. He meets Abram there. At the same time, Melchizedek, this other king, the king of Salem, comes and meets him at the same time. So you've got these two different kings coming and meeting him here. That's a setup, right? Remember watching cartoons as a little kid when the cartoon character was trying to figure out something? And what would appear on his little shoulder? A little angel. And then on the other side would be a little devil, right? And they'd be all, both whispering what that character should do, right? If it's the dog, it's, you should whimper and scratch at the door, the angel would say. If it's the devil, no, just pee on the carpet, pee on the carpet, just do it, who cares, Right? So that's kind of what you have right here. This, this is a setup and it's trying to say, look it, Abram has a choice right now. He's won this great battle. He has a choice between these two guys. We already know about Sodom. Chapter 12 has told us about him. Chapter 13, excuse me, verse 12, wicked, wicked guy. So I already know that side. And Abram, it, after a victory, is faced with, I think, his greatest test. That's the way the Christian life is, I believe. Elijah has a wonderful victory, defeats 450 prophets of Baal, calls down fire from heaven, prays and it starts raining. And then guess what happens to him? Jezebel says, I'm gonna kill you. And he gets so depressed, he wants to die. Ends up in a cave. 
Jesus is baptized, the heavens open. God the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Awesome victory. Next verse, it's, he goes into the wilderness, fast for 40 days, and Satan the temper comes and tempts him. I tell people when they get baptized, if they're guys, and I can, if I put it, can put it this way, I'll say, put your cup on now, bud. I mean, literally put your cup on because it's coming for you. You've just identified as part of the body of Christ. Expect the enemy to attack you. It happened to Jesus. When he was identified, this is my son on whom I'm well pleased, immediately there's an attack. I say after every great victory, you can expect a direct attack. I talk to men that know this. It's the moment they think that they're doing really good that all of a sudden in the back of their head comes this little voice standing on their shoulder saying, bro, you deserve a break now. You've had such great victories. Man, you can go, you can handle this. It's not a big deal. It's when they have great victory, they have sometimes the hardest attack that comes at them. So you be ready. It happens right here to Abram. So you've got Sodom, the king of Sodom coming. And his first word to Abram is what? Bro, thank you so much for doing that. Man, that's unbelievable. No, his first word is, give me. That's the first words out of King Sodom's voice. Give me. There's no thanks. There's no gratitude. There's no blessing. Give me. Melchizedek, this other king, also a priest, which in the Bible is a no-no. Do you know that? Kings were not allowed to be priests. You were either political or you were priestly. You could not cross the two. So here is a guy that defies really the norm of the rest of the Bible. Saul tries it, 1 Samuel chapter 14, the, the entire kingdom is taken away from him. King Uzziah tries it in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. He is turned into a leper. It's that serious. So here's a guy that defies that norm. He's both king and a priest. And he's a king of Salem. It's shalom, it means peace. What city would this be? Many people believe it's Jerusalem. That's my personal. If the King's Valley is the Kidron Valley, then it would only make sense that Salem is later known as Jerusalem. So probably Jerusalem, the king of peace, right? And he brings out what? Red wine. Now you could, some people say you can't say it's communion. I say I have no problem saying it's communion. But minimally it's this, it's a feast. He brings a feast out to Abraham. He feeds him. They have a meal together. He blesses him and actually preaches at him, right? Abram, you got this victory because God gave it to you. I'm going to remind you of this, Abram, because right now, look out, pride comes for the fall. Look out, buddy. You got this victory because God most high delivered your enemies into your hands. It was a divine battle. You won because God helped you, right? So who is Melchizedek? King, priest. He is the king of Salem or Jerusalem or, you know, whatever. Priest of God most high. Nobody knows. Some people say he's just a priest. Other people say he is God the Son in a pre-incarnate appearance. 
which we'll see, I think, again in chapter 18. I think we'll see it again with Hagar. I think we'll see it, I think, you know, it's not unheard of for God to appear, God the Son to appear in the Old Testament. Um, The Jews actually called him the second Yahweh. There's the second Yahweh character. Hmm. We would say that that's God the Son later. Incarnate becomes Jesus. So that's what I personally believe. Um, You can disagree with me. He shows up in Hebrews. Read Hebrews chapter five and chapter seven. It doesn't clarify it there. It just kind of like, oh, okay. More data, you gotta make your decision. I've landed on, it is a pre-incarnate appearance. It's God the Son. Minimally though, here's what this means. Where is he at right now? This priest of God most high, possibly God the Son, where's he at? Canaanite land. Who are the Canaanites? The bad guys. In the big story of the Bible, the Canaanites are the bad guys. Where is the high priest at right now of God? And smack dab in the middle of the bad guys, the Canaanites. What should that say to you? God cares for them. That's what that tells you. So throughout the Torah, throughout the first five books of the Bible, actually throughout the entire Old Testament, what you see is God has a plan for Israel, but there's these fender benders with the other nations. Boom, boom, boom. And these fender benders are serving a purpose. It's for them to know when God shows up to Pharaoh, what does he say to him over and over? You're gonna know that I'm God. I'm gonna demonstrate to you that I am the only true God. I'm gonna tear down every single one of your gods through my 10 plagues to demonstrate that I'm God. So it's God's care, I believe, for Pharaoh. I want you to know who I am. Read the book of Ezekiel over and over. It says, I want them to know that I'm God. Right here, you have Melchizedek, whoever he is, in the midst of Canaanite land, why demonstrating, turn to God. Canaanites, turn to God. I'm giving you 400 years to turn to me. I love it. We think so often that the only way God works is a missionary with the Bible. And yet the Bible tells us, hold on a second. God does things way outside the box over and over and over again. If you've ever had the question like, well, does God care for other people? Or what happened to the Aborigine or this or that? Get the book, Eternity in Their Hearts. It just gives historic story after historic story, how God way before the missionaries was reaching into people groups and showing and demonstrating who he is to them. Right here, just like Melchizedek. Right? I've told you the example of Machu Picchu, the guy who built Machu Picchu. Um, he comes out one day, they worship the sun. A cloud covered the sun. He said, why do we worship something that can be covered with a cloud? The cloud goes away. He puts his thumb up. He blots out the sun. He goes, that is no God. I want to find the real God. He writes down what he discovers. And what he discovers is this. They had gods at that time that were bloodthirsty. He goes, no, God is not a bloodthirsty God. He's a God of love. And he sent his son to demonstrate his love for us. All that without ever having a Bible. That was simply Jeremiah 29, 13. If you search for me, you will find me if you search with your whole heart. I'm convinced of that. And that's what you see happening right here. God cares about these people, wants them to know him, right? The fender benders with the other nations throughout the Old Testament. To me, it's brilliant, all right? So anyways, Abram responds to this guy, whoever he is, how does he respond? Dude, take 10%. 
that's crazy, right? We don't know what happened when they had the meal together, the feast together. But just think about that. You meet someone, you like them. Do you instantly tally your net worth hmm, and write them a check for 10%? Anybody doing that? Like, this is radical. <laughs> what in the world? That, that something is very, very unique about this individual that Abram would say, I'm giving you 10% of my net worth. People don't do that. You want to get to the heart of what people really care about? It's their possessions. We're just like children. Children's two first words are what? No, mine. That's exactly what we say when people say, give me something. No, mine. Yet Abraham is so impressed with this Melchizedek that he gives him 10%. So it's unbelievable. It's amazing, right? So he gives him 10%, unbelievable. The king of Sodom now has been kind of in the sidelines, like watching this whole thing, right? He, he actually comes first. Melchizedek almost like inter, intercepts this, it appears, grabs Abram for a second. King of Sodom's waiting. They're done with their deal. And then the king of Sodom comes. And what does he do? Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He's like, hey, let's make a deal, Abram. Let's make a deal here. Interesting. Let's make a little deal. You, you, I'll take the people and you get this stuff. And what is Abram's response? He almost quotes what Melchizedek had said to him, right? Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. It's, it's almost exactly what the blessing of Melchizedek was upon him. He just quotes those same words right back at Sodom. No way. I don't want any of your junk. I don't want it. I reject it. I don't want it. You have nothing to offer me. I think right here we get a key for victorious living. Why was Abram able to say to the king of Sodom, I don't want any of your junk? Because he was already full. He was already full. To me, that's the key. He'd already had a meal with Melchizedek. Did you don't got anything to offer me? I want nothing from you. I'm full. It's like this. I have a weakness. Um, it could be generational. Uh, my mom had the same weakness. Uh, I inherited it from her. It's something I have struggled with and tried to kick and can't seem to quit kick it. And it's probably always going to be with me. So my weakness is Briar's natural vanilla ice cream. I know you wanted me to say something much worse so you could like Instagram it right now. Like, Jude, you want to hear what I said? No, that's it. So I found this. If I will fill up on something good, I lose the appetite for the bad Briar's natural vanilla. If I'm eating something, if I'm full, then my appetite is taken away for Briar's natural vanilla, right? So I completely forget about Briar's natural vanilla Briar's natural vanilla if I have eaten something like a giant chocolate bar. It's like, no problem. <laughs> I don't even want it now. All right, you go to the New Testament and you've got Romans 12, 9 that says this, shun evil and glue to good. You go to Ephesians chapter four that says this, put off that stuff and put on this thing. Colossians, same thing. Put off that, put on this, right? In fact, Ephesians just goes down the line. Hey, if you stole... Steal no more, but work so that you can give. That your propensity to steal is actually a perversion of the gift of giving. 
that you are so twisted by Satan right now that he's taken your natural good thing, which would be to be a giver, and he's made you into a taker. So on, twist that thing, right? So I talk to people that, you know, I just love partying. I said, no, you don't. You just love people. You love fellowship. The godly thing that you want, the good thing that you want, isn't partying, it's fellowship. It's good, deep communion with people to know, be known by them and to know them. That's what you really, really want. So you untwist that by finding the good. I call it replacement theology. Not the weird one with the church replacing Israel, the biblical one of Romans chapter 12, verse nine, of Ephesians chapter four, verses 20 through 32, of Colossians chapter three, verses one through 10. It's, that's what you do. It's exactly what's happened with Abram. I'm already full. I dined with the king. I want none of your garbage. I'll take nothing, verse 24, from you. I'm not bargaining with you, okay? Awesome chapter. So real quick on the king. You have the kings in here, Melchizedek, this. There's a whole idea that comes out of kings. Isaiah builds on it. Jesus comes, and if you're going to tell somebody Jesus's message was or is, what's the one thing that you would say Jesus's message is? Forgiveness of sins? Yeah. Love? People would say love, maybe. Um, Don't worry, let not your heart be troubled. Maybe that's it. Uh, you, You got all these ideas, right? The golden rule, do do unto others as they do to you. You can have any one of those. I'm gonna say those are all wrong because Jesus comes and the very first message he preaches, I think is real important. It's Matthew 4, 17. It's also Luke or um, Mark 1, 15. And it's also in Luke. And it's this, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, synonymous terms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think that's the message. And it's built on this whole idea of king, that there's a right king. So we have this idea when it comes to kingdom, here's our thought mostly, I think about when we think about kingdoms, we think like of a place, like the kingdom of the Sauds, right? Saudi Arabia, where you have these kind of things. Well, that's not at all the idea of kingdom in the Bible. The idea of kingdom, actually the word Kingdom, the D-O-M there, uh, if you look at the entomology of that, it's actually the jurisdiction. It's where that king has activity and has authority. That's his kingdom. It has nothing to do with geography. It has who are the people that are underneath his jurisdiction where he has activity or he has power, all right? So Jesus comes and says, I'm bringing the kingdom a place of the jurisdiction or the authority or the activity of God. It's coming with me. Now, we're Americans, and we don't like kings, right? Why don't we like kings? Because they're like Genesis chapter 14. Taxation without representation, right? The bullies, we're not going to pay you. We're going to throw your team to the, right? That's what, so our history is very much like, we don't want a king. We don't like kings. This whole idea of kings is we, we, we don't like it. Get away from us, right? It's bad. They force tribute it, it, under their, their control. We want to vote on it. We want control in it, right? And even the idea of the kingdom of God right now, who's the one group that's trying to bring the kingdom of God to earth? 
Anybody know? ISIS, right? The caliphate. They're the one group right now saying, we are going to bring the kingdom of God here. That's their whole purpose. You read about them. How are they doing it? Genesis 14, beheading, killing, destroying, destructive. So these terms, like we bring the 21st century to it and we're like, we don't like taxation without representation, the kingdom of God thing. It's, you know, it's force, it's subjugation. It's, it's, it, we don't like it, right? So those are ideas that cloud when we read kingdom. So you have to get back to Jesus, okay? When did Jesus get crowned as king? Crown of thorns, right? When was the first time they said, hail, king of the Jews? Crucifixion. When was he given a robe, the honored robe, demonstrating his kingship? Crucifixion, right? So Jesus demonstrates a way different kind of king. Not the Genesis 14, one through 16, but the Genesis 14, 17 through 20. A giver, a blesser, a server, a preacher. That's what he demonstrates. So Jesus brings a whole new kind of kingdom, the right kind of kingdom. A kingdom where it's not about tribute, but it's actually about giving. A kingdom where it's not about force and control, but blessing and prosperity. That, that's the kingdom that he brings, right? So we have to unwrap that. And when you realize that was Jesus's big message, hey, follow me, become part of my kingdom underneath my jurisdiction where we do things differently, where we love our neighbors, where we love our enemies, where we pray for those that despitefully use us. Come underneath my jurisdiction, live like me, live like a Hebrew, someone on this side. That's what he's calling us to do. That's the biblical theology of the king. And when you and I follow Jesus, we're called into that same kingdom and the same lifestyle that he gave. Not the king saying, you do these things, but the king that comes from the bottom and serves, that he that is the greatest in the kingdom shall be the servant of all. So it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. And you see it begin right here with the first man. Maybe this is Jesus, maybe it's not, maybe it's pre I don't know, but you see it right here. He serves, he feeds, he blesses, he gives. And out of the abundance, the response there's no asking. The response of Abram is, did you take 10%? That's really the gospel right there. Like God says, I want you to respond. I want to grab your heart. I don't want to force you with laws. I want to be so good to you and be such a gracious king to you that your only response is, how can I not give to you? That's the kingdom and it's brilliant. So Jesus, may we go from here being Hebrews May the whole world stand over there and me and Edgewater and us stand with you where we demonstrate a different kingdom, salt, light, treating people according to the constitution of your kingdom, not the constitution of America, not the constitution of our upbringing, but the way that you would. So may you empower us to live like you. May you empower us to be citizens of your kingdom, salt and light, 
in Grant's Pass. So fill, empower, remind, enable. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.